scripture is Matthew 26, 17 through 35. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many of, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Hey, good morning. Everybody all right? Do me a favor. Stand up. Got a little bit of liturgy today that goes with what we're talking about, and we're doing this for a reason, and you will know that reason once we get going. I'm already losing my voice. It's the beginning of first service. Here we go. Got my tea. I'm not going to make it. Glad you're here for this one. Um, Okay, so we're going to do today uh, Psalm 136, and you'll understand why a little later. I'm going to do the the light parts. You're going to do the bold parts, all right? And I want you to ponder this. Um, I want you to feel it, and I want you to say it as it feels, all right? Um, So here we go. Thank God he deserves your thanks. Thank the God of all gods. Thank the Lord of all lords. Thank the miracle working God. The God whose skill formed the cosmos. The God who laid out earth on ocean foundations. The God who filled the skies with light. The sun to watch over the day. Moon and stars as guardians of the night. Together. God remembered us when we were down. His love never quits. Rescued us from the trampling boot. His love never quits. Takes care of everyone in time of need. His love never quits. Thank God who did it all. His love never quits. Thank you. You can be seated. Um, Here's what we're going to do. I want you to just use your imagination for a little bit, and we're going to imagine what it is like to gather um, in a first century um, church gathering. The character I have in my mind is, um, um, she, it's a woman, and she's a Roman citizen. She's a part of a household. She has a husband who is a patriarch, 
and she lives in a household with, she has children and there are slaves in this household. It's a very normal Roman household. And, and imagine yourself as this woman going to a, a first century church gathering in the time when Paul is traveling around and writing letters and sending these letters around. So you're gonna, it's going to start very simply. You're going to walk out of your house in sort of an urban setting. Maybe you live in Rome. Maybe you live in Pompeii. Um, maybe you live in, in, uh, in Galatia or Philippi. And you're going to walk out of your door and you're going to turn and you're going to start walking down the ancient Roman streets. And they are, um, they're marked with chariots from the millions of chariots that have come through these streets over the years. And there's water rushing down these down these streets, be just cleaning them out as people throw their garbage in the streets. And across the streets, you have to step on these stones to get over the water. And you're traveling, and maybe you're wearing leather sandals, or maybe you're barefooted. Um, and you're heading towards this house, and as you head towards this house, um, you're sort of in prayer, and you're pondering life, and you're pondering all of the things that you're going through. You're pondering your family, um, none of whom would come with you um, today. And as you approach the house, you see it, and there are... Children playing in the yard, they're playing hide-and-seek in the bushes, um, and there's a, there's a slave walking by, leaving the, leaving the house, and he's got a, a, a spit with a bunch of uh, meat hanging on the end, and he's running it down the street to somebody else, um, and there's people walking around, talking, embracing, hugging, kissing each other on the cheek, shaking hands, looking into each other's eyes, um, and, and grasping each other's arms, and really greeting each other. Um, as if they mean it, as if they're really happy to see each other, as if they're going through something together. And as you walk closer to the house, you walk up on the porch, and there's, where, there's a, a sort of an alcove where there used to be an idol, uh, uh, a um, sort of um, uh, an idol to the, to the local god that you worshipped, whether it's Apollo or whoever, but it's been desecrated and it's been removed because this house doesn't have any more of these idols anymore. They don't worship these other gods, um, and they won't allow them in their house. And so it's been desecrated, and you walk right by, um, and you begin to walk into the house, and as you walk into the house, you see people scattered around the atrium. Um, there's water. Maybe it had just rained earlier, and there's water falling into the pool in the middle, and maybe you're going to wash your hands or your feet in the pool in the middle. And there's people sitting around on, maybe on the ground, sort of uh, crossing their legs, or they're sitting on pillows, or they're resting. And there's people gathering in twos and threes, all around the room, and they're, they're sort of talking about the things of God, and they're, they're praying together. Um, over in the corner, there's an elder, um, what we would call a pastor or a priest, and this elder has a, either a scroll or a codex, like a, a stack of papers bound together with big sort of steel rings, and he's flipping these things, and he's reading these letters from the apostles that had visited a couple years earlier. This man named Paul had, had written to them after teaching them um, what this is all about and how all of this works and who, who Jesus was and what happened. And, and the elder's in the corner with the codex and, and, and he's opening it and he's, he's teaching somebody about what it says, but deeper he's going, he's talking about what it means and he's telling, retelling the story of Israel and he's putting this man's place in it and he's putting Jesus' place in it and he's going through exactly what this looks like. And then you're gonna walk maybe straight through the house out onto the veranda and there's gonna be more children playing. Some of the children are dressed sort of in, 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 the, in the, the clothing of slave children, and some of the children are dressed in very nice sort of Roman um, expensive clothing, um, and they're playing together, and they're mingling together, and the crowd kind of looks the same. They're all different. Um, this, there's, there's not one sort of particular group represented here. They're, they're everyone. They're, 
there's Romans, and there's even a couple centurions, and there's some, there's some slaves, and there's some Jews, um, and they're all dressed different, and they're all intensely interested in each other and speaking to each other. Um, and then you walk back inside because someone has told you the meal's about to start. So you're going to go in the house, and there's going to be a table. It's going to be a really low table, and people are going to be reclining at the table. And you walk in, and there's a, a Roman magistrate who calls you over, and he doesn't recognize you, but you recognize him because he's a Roman magistrate. And you've been to court where he's sitting on the court seat. Um, and you sort of had your head down and you were, you were bowing when this happened. And you're showing respect because you didn't have much honor. Um, this man has much more honor than you and your family do. Um, and so he doesn't necessarily recognize you, but you recognize him. And he invites you to sit down right next to him. And he looks at you and he passes you some of the food. And the food starts to go around. And he passes you um, one of the dishes and you see it, and you take it. Maybe it's a big sort of vat of, of pork, and you take a piece, and he kisses you on the cheek, and he shakes your hand, and you take some, and you put it on your plate. You pass it to the guy next to you, but he's Jewish, and he explains to you, I don't actually eat this. I follow uh, the Old Testament, the Torah, um, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and so I don't eat this. But he also explains that, yes, he's one of you. He worships Jesus with you, but he still eats kosher. And he keeps the law. And so he passes it on to the next one. And he brings himself over some vegetables and some bread and some wine. Um, and as this goes, there's just this general understanding that every single person at the table is equal in a way they have never been outside this house. They are looking at each other and they see each other and they care about each other. And they're asking, what is your need? Are you in need? Does any... And they're giving money to each other as each other has need. And they're taking care of each other in this way. Um, and then the elder stands up, and he leads a prayer, um, and he starts talking about this thing called the Eucharist. He explains that the Eucharist, you hear that in your language, is the good gift. What is the good gift? Um, he says it's, it's, a, it's a meal of thanksgiving. And he takes, he stands up, and he reads this scroll from the great apostle who was here some years earlier. And this apostle, his name was Paul, and this apostle has written about how um, Jesus, the night before he was betrayed which is the passage we just read, he took the bread and the wine and he broke it and he gave it and said, this is my body and I want you to eat and drink this in remembrance of me. And he's reading the words of Paul who is recounting the words likely of Peter who was at the table when this happened. And the elder is telling the meaning of this, of this, uh, of this motion of taking these two particular things from the table. And he picks up the glass of wine and he takes the bread and he snaps the bread in half and he takes the wine and he passes it around and he says, when you do this, when you take this bread and this wine, when you eat it and when you drink a big gulp of this wine, you are taking part uh, in the death of Christ, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You are, you are imbuing its meaning into your own life, and you are committing to taking part in this. And when you do this, we recognize you as our brothers and our sisters. And he passes it around, and the Roman magistrate takes some, and he passes it to you, and you snap off a piece and you eat it. And then you spend some time in prayer. And you get quiet, and you begin to ponder the ways in which this action of Jesus, this life, this death, this crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus, um, how it has changed you personally, what it has meant for you, how it has brought you freedom, what you understand now as who God is and who these kings are and who the real king of the universe is, um, and what that king wants, and how you can see the all-powerful God of the universe, the face of that God in Jesus. And you're pondering how this has changed your life so much. And you think about your husband who sort of tolerates your superstition. 
He thinks it's a little silly. Um, and he doesn't understand. You gather with a bunch of people and you, you all pretend you're equal. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me. Whatever. Sounds really superstitious. Continue, though. That's fine. And he doesn't forbid you from going, so you go. Your oldest, bro- your oldest son, though, he thinks you're stupid. He, he has no idea why you would want to take part in any of this. Um, but you have a daughter and a, and, and a youngest son who once in a while come with you. And they're beginning to connect with the children and the people. And they're beginning to understand something bigger. And they're beginning to question when they see people of honor beating people with lower honor in the city. And they're beginning to see things differently uh, than their father does. Um, and your thoughts really kind of linger on your son because he's becoming, in your mind, he's, becoming, he's starting to become very Roman as he's getting older. Very Roman. He is... Um, He's taking part in, in the honor culture, and he is, you know, she knows that the Roman way leads to slavery, to sin, grasping for status, uninhibited sexual, sexual expression, um, um, a, a lack of care for those under you, um, a belief that violence is the way to peace, um, and you're worried about him. And you're pondering all of this, and then the elder begins to speak again, and so your, your, mind is, your, your mindset is sort of broken for a second as you begin to listen to the elder. And the elder starts to talk about um, reports he's heard from one of these apostles about a church in Greece, and he says it's in a city called Corinth, and in this city, um, they've been misusing the church gathering and the communion table. Um, the wealthier people have been gathering early and, and having their own meal. And by the time the, the poorer, lower-status people and the slaves show up, there's no more. Um, they have already eaten, and they've moved away from the table, and all the good wine is drunk, and, and, and all the good food is eaten, um, and they've moved on, so they don't have to sit at the table with these people. And, and he says, this Passover meal is not supposed to have anything to do with any of that. The elder makes it clear that Roman ways stop at the door. And that everyone, man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Greek, rich or poor, are one in the family of Christ. And that is how we should all be seen constantly all the time. And the elder then says, this Passover, this meal is a cup of thanksgiving. And by drinking that cup, each of us, again, is participating in all of this. He says, in eating the bread, you have partaken in the, in the body of Christ. So throughout the evening, this elder is, is connecting this table and this wine and this bread. Um, the whole, to, to, he's connecting our whole lives to this meal. To this Eucharist, and he's saying, I hope that you begin to see this in every moment of your life. I hope you begin to see as you look around the body of Christ broken for this person, the blood of Christ poured out for this person. And I hope it begins to change how you look at the world around you because these people need salvation from this world in which they live. They need to be free from it. Um, so the Eucharist that they celebrated, that I just talked to you about. Sometimes it's called the communion. That's what we call it here. Um, it just basically is a word that means common. Um, this thing that this elder did was created by Jesus in the passage that we just read. Um, he took something that already existed, which was the Passover meal, and he took one piece of it, two pieces of it, two elements of it, and he pulled them out, and he said, I'm going to give you something new. And by giving you this thing, it's going to change um, not just the meaning of the meal, um, but the meaning of the gathering entirely. He, sa- he says, when, when I give you these things, I'm going to give them to you in a brand new way. And here we go. Let's look at today's passage. It starts right here. Um, Jesus has made 
um, arrangements. They have to celebrate the Passover. It starts on the first day of unleavened bread. Um, and he's told, he's told his people, go down to the city, and you're going to look for a specific guy. He's there. He's waiting. He's ready. You're gonna have, we're going to have Passover at his house within the city of Jerusalem, as we're supposed to, as, as good um, Jewish people are supposed to do. And so he sends them, and they find this man, and then they go. Uh, it says, go into the city to a certain man, um, and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, when it says that they prepared the Passover, um, it means they're gathering the elements that are needed. They're decorating the table and they're setting it up. Um, and they're basically preparing themselves in prayer and they're cooking all of the food. There's four things in particular that would have been at the Passover table um, in, ancient, in the ancient Jewish world. Um, first off, there is a bowl of salt water. This bowl of salt water um, was intended um, to be for, for taking some of the raw vegetables and dipping them in and eating it. And the whole point of the, of the, uh, the, uh, the salt water, the, the bitterness of the water, was, was to remind the people 500 years earlier when they were in Babylon of the tears that they cried that ran down their face and into their mouth and they tasted the tears as they mourned and as they wept and as they cried out to God to set them free. Um, there's three more elements at the table. Um, one of them is, is a collection of bitter herbs that had to be prepared um, and composed of horseradish, chicory, endive, lettuce, and something called whorehound. I don't know what that is. Um, sounds like a, like, a, like a Game of Thrones character. Who knows? Um, um, this, was, this was, again, to remind them of the bitterness of slavery um, and how long they were in it. Um, and just how much of a terrible time it was in their lives, and how every day they would wake up sobbing, crying out for liberation from their captors, uh, from the Egyptians, uh, from their enslavement, from their constantly being beaten and tortured and oppressed, and their children being born into this and raised, and having their children who were born into this and raised, and having their children and generation after generation in bondage. Um, and there's another thing that, that harkens back to this bondage. There's this paste called cheriset, and it was a mixture of apples, dates, and pomegranates, and nuts, um, and it was the color of clay, and it was intended to remind the people of the bricks that they made. One of the things that was so terrible about Egypt um, and their enslavement was that um, every single day was exactly like the day before it, and the day before that, and the day before that. There was no Sabbath, there was no break, there was no payment, there was no saving up of money to better yourself or do something different. What you did when you were a child was you woke up and you went out and you gathered straw and you, you made clay and you made bricks and you baked them in the sun and you stacked them and gave them to the Egyptians so they could build more monuments. And you did that when you were, you did that when you were 10, you did that when you were 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60, and now you're 70, and you have children who are making those bricks, and you have grandchildren who are making those bricks, and they're getting older, and they're beginning to marry off, and you know that five years, five or six years from now, they're going to have children who are going to be making those same exact bricks. Life has no meaning and purpose. It's just the same thing over and over and over to serve someone who does not care about you and who does not love you, and how desperately they wanted to serve their God again who created them out of love. And so this sits on the table, and they say, look at it, and they ponder it, and there's cinnamon sticks in there to remind them of the straw. Um, and then there's one more thing. There's four cups of wine. Yes, actual full cups of wine. And they would drink this wine, and these, these cups of wine were there to remind them of the four promises of Exodus 6, 6 and 7. These were the four promises. They would drink one, and, and they would quote them. Um, it starts off, I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians. 
and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty act of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And they would say these things, hearkening to the words of God, who had swore to them and made a covenant with them. When you make a covenant with somebody, you would take an animal and you would cut that animal in half and you would separate that animal and the blood would run out and it was a, it was a symbol. They didn't have paper and contracts and pens and all this stuff. You would do something that everyone would see and you would both pass through this animal and you would say, if I fail to keep my promise to you, may I become like this animal. And so they are reminded of, of the lamb that was sacrificed on this night and there would have been some, um, some hyssop on the table that would have been used to dip in the lamb's blood and put on the, on the doorposts of the house um, as the angel passed over them and rescued them. Um, and that would have been on the table. This whole thing was about the covenant that God had made, and it was intended to remind them, God is righteous and faithful. By righteous, when the Jewish people said the word righteous, they didn't mean he's moral and keeps the laws. Righteous in the Jewish mind meant one thing. It meant he's faithful to the covenant that he had made. And someone that is declared righteous, it means I have inspected you and you were faithful. You made a covenant and you lived up to it. God was righteous. He was a righteous God. And he would stick to it. He would never let them go. And at the end of this meal, uh, Matthew 26 says, when they had sung a a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, um, I want you to actually, I want to call back to just a second ago. Uh, They drank four glasses of wine, and they, and, they, and they proclaimed the promises of God that he would be with them, and he would take care of them, and he would pull them through this. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives where they entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? And they keep falling asleep. And you think, oh, it's because they had four glasses of wine <laughs> already. This is why. This is all sort of connected. They went straight from this to, the Mount of, to, to Gethsemane. Um, and it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the, olives, uh, the Mount of Olives. What was the hymn that they sung? It was... That they sang, it, it, it was exactly what we had quoted earlier. This was the hymn, Psalm 136, and it's really long, and I just picked out some choice moments of it. Um, this is the hymn that they sang, what we quoted a few minutes ago. They went from the story of creation, of who God is, all the way through creation, um, all the way down through their time in slavery and God freeing them. And the reminder, the constant reminder, this, is, uh, this, this translation is the message, it's not NIV. I chose the message this time because um, in the NIV, in a lot of texts, it says your love never fails, but oftentimes that means that like, God's not going to make a mistake and, and, and fail in his life. This is more like, no, 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 God is committed. He, it's not gonna, he's not going to quit. And quitting is different than failing, right? God is never going to quit. He's always going to live up to this covenant, Always. And so they're reminded of this as they sing this hymn, and then they're going to go out and take a walk, and they're going to spend time under the stars, and they're going to pray, and they're going to ponder everything, and they're going to ponder all of the ways that they are now still in bondage. They're living under the oppression of Rome. Their own religion has partnered with them, and they're being oppressed by their own religion. The leaders of their temple are, are, are preparing to kill them, and Jesus has told them this. Um, but near the... Near the middle of this meal, Jesus does something, and he breaks tradition that had been tradition for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He changes something in this meal, and it goes like this. He picks it up. He says, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung to him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus takes two of the elements on the table. He takes the bread and he takes the wine. In the middle of this Passover, which they had places, those times when they were supposed to use them, and Jesus changes it. He picks it up, and he says, hey, that covenant that God made with us that you're singing about. I'm here to embody that covenant. I'm here to make that covenant with you. That covenant has not ended, and it's not going to end. Instead, it's going to, it's going to come through me. And I'm covenanting with all of you at the table. And in fact, I want you to take this as well. And we're all going to drink it. And you're going to covenant with each other. You are going to do what I do. And I'm doing what God did. God's identity has been put upon me. And I want you to put, take my identity upon you. And he says, I'm doing this for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus takes this thing. It was always just a symbol. It never had any purpose. It never actually did anything. It was a symbol. It was a time of remembrance. It was a ritual. And Jesus takes this symbol, and he moves it from a symbolic activity to a method whereby people would be reconciled. He moves it from metaphor to tool. He uses it. And he says, from this day forward, this is going to be different. Everyone gathered here at this table, we are in covenant together, and we will never quit on each other. We will love each other. And when my body is broken out for you, you will find salvation from what it is that you need salvation from. And there are so many things that you need salvation from. And because of that, you will allow your body to be broken and poured out for those around you. And you will take my identity upon yourself. And my identity will replace every identity that you have in your world. Whether you are Roman or Scythian or barbarian, whether you are um, Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you're slave or free, whether you're man or woman, those identities will be replaced with the image of God following Jesus, living a life that is cruciform and living the, Christ, the, the, the cross for the people around us. And so when you enter into the church gathering, they would gather at the table. Let's go back to the church gathering in the first century with this woman with the Roman family. And she sits down at the table and everyone who takes part in this meal, when you gather at the church gathering, there was no, more, no longer any righteous or unrighteous, no rich or poor, no slave or free, no man or woman, but all were equal and the same. So you would see the Roman procurator with his high-status children playing with the children of slaves. And whereas in today, people tend to say, oh, don't, don't play, no, no, let's not, I mean, let's not play with these kind of children. They're from a different world. Let's not. They're like, no, 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 they're not from a different world. We are the same. We have the same king. We have the same identity and the same purpose. Children love each other. And we adults will love each other. And we will all pour ourselves out for each other. And every time we gather, we will share a meal that will be completely equal. And we will, we will break the bread and we will remind ourselves that what we need all of this, the breaking of the bread, is centered on forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. And Jesus wasn't kidding when he mentioned forgiveness of sins. He wasn't kidding at all. Because at this table with him were two people who would betray him. 
And first your mind goes to just one, Judas. We talked about him last week, but there were two. The first one, though, yes, Judas. It says, while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And I imagine Jesus looking at Judas at some point in the meal, and Judas looking at him thinking, how much does he know? What does he know? How could he know that? Why was Judas betraying Jesus anyway? Who knows? Jesus was apparently not the savior, the king that Judas wanted. He wanted somebody powerful. He wanted somebody violent. He wanted somebody to display strength through might, display God's identity and power by wiping out his enemies. And he wanted to probably sit in a place of authority in this place. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And the funny thing is none of them turn and look at Judas, right? None of them do. They're all confused. They don't get it. But there's another one at the table. Um, this other one, Peter. Um, Jesus is saying, by the end of the night, you're all going to abandon me anyways. He's just being blunt with them. And Peter, right, Mr. Loudmouth Peter, in verse 33, Peter says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So Peter's betrayal was not like planned. It wasn't this planned attack to benefit from the death of somebody. It's not like Judas. Maybe Judas had his eye on some field far away, and he wanted to leave Jesus anyway. Jesus is going to die, and he knows this. So he's, maybe I can get 30 pieces of silver and buy a farm, and I can retire over there. But, but Peter thinks he's strong enough, but he's not. And so his is more like backsliding, right? The old evangelical phrase. Oh, he's backslidden, right? Like, like he couldn't stand up to the pressure, the temptations were too great. Um, and so one of them was on purpose. It was an outright betrayal. But for the other, there was sort of this falling back into his old ways of thinking, drawing his sword when he got scared, when he didn't know what else to do. Um, he would run away instead of standing and being faithful to Jesus and pouring his life out. Um, and he would be afraid of what people think of him and deny knowing Jesus because he cares about his image. Because if this thing is really over, he can't be associated with dishonor, with a man dying naked on a cross, the most dishonorable thing in the world. And so there's all these temptations. And Matthew gives us another dichotomy like Matthew gives us over and over and over. One of them's planned in secret, and the other had no idea that he would do any of this. He thought he was stronger than that. One of them would be brought back to repentance, and the other um, would forever regret what he did to the point where it would eat him up inside, and he would eventually kill himself. He couldn't be brought back. And Jesus is at this table, and before he, he says any of this, he tells them, my body for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. That has huge meaning for what Jesus is about to say, for the forgiveness of your sins, all of you, not just the sins of your culture, high honor, low honor status, um, party, uh, political party, just all, not, not, not just that, not just, not just the ways that you have failed and the sins that you bear upon yourself, but also the sins they're going to commit directly against him for the forgiveness of sins. My body poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus gathered with them both at the table. At the table, they were his brothers, even though he knew they were going to betray him. They might have failed him out there, and he knew that. He knew they were going to fail him. But he would not disown them. He wouldn't do it. Because it, at the table, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter where you've come from, what you've done, and what you will do. Right now, in this moment, 
this is a symbol of eternity. We are brothers and sisters and we are equal. And there's one king. And we care for each other and we practice preemptive love on each other. And all of these other ways that we're afraid that people are going to fail us, and by the way, they will. We don't just commune with people like us. We don't. The church should not be a group of people that are all exactly the same. Instead, um, we commune with people, with many, who have the ability to harm us. But we choose it anyway. We choose to love each other anyway. Communion is a choice. It's absolutely a choice. As we gather here, we set before us all the pains of our past, we observe them and we pray over them and we find freedom from them. But it's not just the things that we have done, it's the things that others have done too. Because at the communion table, this happens for the forgiveness of sins of those around us. And this can get very, very personal. Because um, oftentimes when I'm taking communion, oftentimes when it's just Sunday morning and I'm gathered here, I've been, I've been at Watermark since 2003. I have running through my mind all the time, the thousands of people that have come through this place over the last decade and a half. And many of those relationships went amazing. And many of them did not. And you have these relationships in your life too. And oftentimes, when I think about the church, I don't just see your faces. I don't just think about current watermark, I think about past watermark, and I think about the people who betrayed other people in this room, who betrayed me, who betrayed other members, other elders, who betrayed people in terrible, terrible ways, and I, I picture them in my head, and there's this twinge of hurt, and there's this twinge of, of getting even and vengeance, But I have the reminder of Jesus who sits at the table with people knowing what they're going to do before they do it and looking them in the eye and speaking to them as if they are brothers. And that is a picture of how the church is to work. There are people here, maybe this morning right now, who will betray you, who will betray me. And we know this. And we look at each other and we say, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ poured out for you. My body for you as well. Whatever you need. You are my equal. You are my brother. You are my sister. Knowing that some of this will end terribly and affirming that that's entirely possible. But I will be the presence of God in this place. Every form of oppression Every form of neglect, every form of brokenness is caused by a lack of love. Every form of it. Every form of people around us living in poverty is, is because of a lack of love on some level. Every form of enslavement in the world is absolutely an act, a, a, a lack of love. Everything that is broken in our societies, every, every instance of inequality, every instance of somebody not having what they need, every instance of somebody not being able to afford something that they are desperate for, all of this is caused by a lack of love. And at this table, Jesus takes a metaphor 
And he says, no, when you gather at this table, this will make you equal. This will be an exercise every week. And somebody who comes and sits with you, you look them in the eye as your brother and your sister. At no point does anything from out there, from this empire or any empire in which a church might exist, any of the ways which you are considered higher or lower or success or failure or any of the ways that you think, I'm, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60, and what have I done with my life? None of that enters into this room. Because in this room, we are, we are the presence of Jesus. We are brothers and sisters, and we pour ourselves out for each other as Jesus did for us. Why? Because it is, it is the only way forward. And needs will not be ignored like they are out there. And people who are desperate will be seen, unlike out there. People who are lonely will find family, unlike out there. America ends at these doors. It ends there. And in here, we are family. We are brothers and sisters. Why don't we prepare for communion? We're going to do one last thing on our way to communion, but our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and gather the elements um, and spread around the room. As we make our way towards communion, I would like to do sort of one more version of this liturgy. And I would like us to ponder all of this. And I want you to ponder all of the people in your life that have stabbed you in the back, that have betrayed you, all of the people that have looked at you and say, you have not lived up to my standards, all the people who have shunned you because of your background, because of anything in your life, because of the way you are. And I want you to be reminded that God's love never quits. And because of that, the love of Jesus never quits. And because of that, our love will never quit. And so why don't you stand with me? And we're going to do this one more time. In all of the ways that we have failed each other, all of the ways that we have hurt each other, all of the cultural differences that we have, all of the ways that we have failed to live together, we have betrayed each other, we have judged each other, we have shunned each other, His love never quits. His love never quits. His love never quits. Let's pray. Father, as we go to communion, change our hearts for each other, for the world around us. Let us not bring those things out there into this place. Let us be you. We pay all this in your name. Amen. Take some time. Take communion.